Don't you wish you had kids' energy some days? Awesome. Love it. I love the innocence of children. As we think about this idea of carols, we're singing songs that we know and enjoy. And one of the songs that's the most popular year after year that's been voted most popular for at least 100 years now has been Away in a Manger. That's the one that we will sing this morning and we've already sung and we'll think about this morning. Away in a Manger and the the theology and the depth of all the stuff that's in the songs that we've been singing. We looked at Emmanuel a couple of weeks ago and what it meant for God to be with us, for him to take on flesh and to to walk among us. And that one, it allowed him to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but also allows him, because he's experienced all things that we've experienced as, as humans, it allows him to sit at the right hand of the Father and to mediate on our behalf and to be the perfect high priest for us. But then also this idea of a holy night and what it was like that moment that Jesus was born and the holiness of the moment and what it means for us to be worshipers, not only on just during Christmas season, but with our lives throughout the year. Well, this morning we're looking at this idea of a way in a manger. And some thought Martin Luther wrote it, but actually it was written a little bit later on. And it was a poem that they found in the newspapers in the 1830s and became a song and wrote some music to it. And it became very popular in the turn of the century in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it says this, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Now, that this time of the season, we like to, to think of Jesus in the, the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and, and the, the cuteness of the moment, but there's so much more to this idea of Jesus being Lord, and we'll look at more of that this morning. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Now, this passage was supported by, that came from Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, and this is the moment where the angels are out in the fields and, and, and an angel shows up. The angels weren't in the field. The shepherds were in the field. And as the shepherds were out in the field, an angel shows up. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were out in the field and you were tending to sheep or tending to cows or whatever you tend to out in the field and an angel showed up, the first thing you would do would be scared, right? You'd probably run in the opposite direction. Well, so immediately the angel shows up to these shepherds tending their sheep and he says this, do not be afraid. So even there, God shows that he's a practical God. He realizes, hey, even in that moment, naturally, we're going to be fearful. But hear the angel, the first words, when they show up in the present, say, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, cause for great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And what I want us to think about is that in this passage here in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, are some great truths of the description and the characteristics of who Jesus is. This little baby laid down in a manger, away in a manger, little Lord Jesus was also Messiah, the Anointed One, and the Lord. And what does that mean for us? So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and kind of hold there. And I want you to underline these words, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. The first thing that we see is that he's the Savior of the world. Now, there's a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus is taking his disciples. It's the beginning of his ministry, and he's been doing some things. And one of the first things that he does is he walks through Samaria. And if you don't know anything about Samaria, Samaria is a place where Jews, Hebrews, did not go. It was considered an unclean land. And so if there was, there were unclean people. And so if there was any route to where you were going to go, you would go around Samaria. You didn't want to mix 
in Samaria. You wouldn't want to go to those places. That's just where you didn't want to go. And so here the rabbi, Jesus, walks through Samaria, and he stops at a well in Samaria and sits down at midday. And his disciples, he sends them off to H-E-B so they can buy groceries because they're going to need to eat here in a little bit. And so they sit, he sits down at the well and begins to rest, which is a normal place to rest, but it's a hot time. The disciples are gone, and in the middle of the day, a woman shows up, a Samaritan woman shows up at the well. Now, interestingly enough, this is the time that you would think anyone who's getting water would not show up. Generally, if you were going to get water, you would show up early in the morning or you show up later in the evening because it was a little bit cooler. And so the wells were a little bit away from town, and you would go out and get your water and carry it back. So here the Samaritan woman, in the middle of the day, when no one else was there, showed up. So this tells us a little bit about this woman is that she showed up at the well when no one else would be there because she didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to talk to anyone. She didn't want to have discussions with anyone. And she is surprised when she shows up. Not only is there a man there, but that there's a Jewish man there because he should not be at that place. It's a surprise to her. But she continues on. She needs water. So she shows up and continues to get water and enters into a discussion with this guy named Jesus. And so as they begin to talk, begins to realize that, hey, this guy, Jesus, not only am I surprised by his presence, but I'm surprised by the conversation that we're having. He's different than anyone else that I've talked with. And then this encounter, she comes to understand that this guy, Jesus, that's at the well, is the Messiah, the anointed one. And that she is not only a Samaritan woman, but she's had struggles in her life. She's had relationship issues in her life. And so she is there because of that. And she doesn't want to talk to anyone. She doesn't want to see anyone. She doesn't want to discuss it. She's there. And here she is face-to-face with the Messiah, the anointed one. And she has an encounter with Jesus. Now, immediately because of this encounter, she runs back to the very town of the very people that she's been avoiding and that she didn't want to see and that she didn't want to talk to. She runs back to them and kind of opens up in midtown and says, listen, I need to tell y'all a story. I need to tell y'all who I just met at the well. He needs, you need to meet this guy. And so here in John chapter 4, verse 42, we see that the culmination of that. They said to the woman, now these people had run out to Jesus. They had heard her story heard about what happened and how she'd had this encounter with the Messiah. And so literally as Jesus looks out and sees them coming, he says, look, the fields are white under harvest. You can The massive amount of people coming out to talk to him. In John 4.42, they say this to the woman in response to meeting Jesus. They said to her, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now listen, this is what we're supposed to be doing, is that we've had surprise encounter with Jesus at some point. He's intersected our life when we probably least expected it. And in that encounter, we are transformed by that encounter with him. And the next thing for us to do is to go back to others, those that we do life with, maybe even those we avoid, and to share our encounter with Jesus and to bring them and say, you need to meet this person. Look look at my encounter, how it's changed me, how it's transformed me, how it's making a difference in my life, and it will bring people and draw them to Jesus. So therefore, they can have an encounter like this and say, listen, we don't just believe in this Jesus guy because of you, but now we've had our own personal encounter with him, and we're transformed by sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing from him, that that should be our story as well, that to bring the Savior of the world and have an encounter with him.
Now, one of the interesting things about this is this is a Samaritan woman. So by the fact that she's a Samaritan, she's unclean in the Hebrew world, in Hebrew thought, and she's a woman, so that, sorry, ladies, that lowers her a little bit more. And because she's a Samaritan woman and she's had relationship issues in the past, she's been married four or five times, and now she's not married. And, and so all these different things going on. And so she, on the social ladder of those that should expect salvation, from the Messiah, from the anointed one, she is not it. But Jesus, in this moment, shows us that the foot of the cross is equal ground and that salvation is available to all. And as a matter of fact, the farther down the social ladder and the farther away from what the world says should be saved are the ones that it's most available to. So here this woman receives the truth of who the Messiah is, and she's saved and goes and tells her story and draws others in to the story of the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and the Messiah in the encounter that she has with the Savior. The second thing that we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, not only is there a Savior of the world, but Jesus is also considered the Messiah or the Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, there's a story of Jesus again has been out and about doing ministry. And it's a little bit further on in his ministry from John chapter 4. And as he's talking about beginning to rumors of, hey, he's John the Baptist. He's the second coming of John the Baptist. Or he's the second coming of Elijah. And so there's been prophecies of the, the Messiah coming and others of coming back. And so all these different stories and rumors are going around. And so Jesus has a moment where he's pulled away with his disciples and it's a teaching moment with them. And he says, hey, all these stories are going around and people are saying all these different things about me. And all of these things are inadequate. All of these things are not fully true about who I am. So those of you, these disciples that I've been doing life with, these 12 of you, we've been eating dinner together. We've been walking together. We've been sharing stories. We've been doing life. I've sat in your living room and you've sat in mine. And so we've done life now for about three years. And all these other people say these things about me. But who you who've been doing life with me, who do you say that I am? And that word you right there in the beginning, whenever Jesus says, who do you say that I am, is an emphatic tense of like, I need to know, I need to know that it's clear to you that you understand who I am. And so in that midst of all of that, the one that's kind of the the crazy stand-up extrovert guy, Peter stands up on behalf of the disciples and says this, Simon Peter answered him, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Now, here's the beautiful thing about this, is that this is a very specific wording and truth that Peter is expressing that he may not even fully understand, but God has revealed to him in this moment whenever God says, you, and he responds, he says, you are the Messiah. So he's saying, you, Jesus, are the anointed one that we've been waiting for. There's been a long anticipation for thousands of years. My family have been waiting for you to come and to bring salvation. Now, they have still continued, I think, to think that salvation means that Jesus will be elevated to the kingship of Israel and so that the nation of Israel will be and, and all salvation will come that way. But we understand because we look through the lenses backward that that wasn't, it was, wasn't even part of it, but salvation was for all. And so here she's saying, here he, Peter is saying is you are the Messiah. You bring salvation to all, even to the Samaritan woman. 
And then the second part of this is that you're the son of the son is the lineage. And he understands that, hey, this is the son of Abraham. This is the son of David. This is the son of promise to the living, the son of the living God. Now, this God is literally Yahweh, which is the personal name, Yahweh, I am, so that Jesus, you are the long-awaited anointed one, the Messiah, and you are of the Son. You are the lineage of David. You are the lineage of Abraham. You're the promise that's been long-awaited and that you are the I am. And so whenever you spoke to Moses in the bush There you said, I am, I am, this is your name, this is your personal name. And so Peter is exclusively saying, Jesus, you are the long-awaited one that is from the lineage of Abraham and of David, and your lineage is there, and you are the son of the I am. This is not a coincidence. This is not happenstance. This is exactly who you need to be. You are the Messiah, the Christ, and it is exactly the person that we've been waiting for. Now, this is a revelation that came to Peter. And as a matter of fact, in that moment, even Jesus responds and says, Peter, upon professions like this, I will build my church. So that as you and I gather into this place as followers of Jesus Christ, we have made that same profession to Jesus, that we've encountered him at the well. We've been looking for something and we're thirsty and we receive the Savior. But also at the same time, we make that profession of Jesus. You are the long-awaited anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. It's an exact profession and confession of us. And then as we gather together in community, that that's what we're saying, that that babe wrapped in swaddling clothes is not only my Savior, but he's the Messiah. And that's what draws us together as a community, the Messiah. Not only is he our Savior, not only is he our Messiah, but also he's our Lord. In the New Testament, the word Lord, kurios, is used over 740 times in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. So this idea of lordship is an important one. Lordship, literally this idea of lord means he's the supreme in authority or he's the controller. Now let's be honest, most of us, we like to have control of our own life. And so we struggle with this idea of control. Like we want to have control. We want to say when we're going to do stuff and how we're going to do stuff and when we're going to do it. How many of y'all struggle with control in your life? A couple of you, the rest of you are lying to yourself, okay? You like to have control, and we struggle with this control. I struggle with control in different areas of my life. And you know where I struggle with control the most in my life? Driving. I like to be in charge when I'm driving. Matter of fact, this is a consistent discussion between myself and my wife, Becky, is we're going to discuss. And so there have been moments where I've allowed her to be in control of the car for a little bit. And the entire time, I'm continuing to discuss with her her ability, whether to drive or to steer, and how she's going to do this back and forth. And, and I initially start off by saying, hey, listen, I'm going to sleep, right? And so, but a little bit later on, I'm like, she's like, are you going to sleep? And I'm like, I can't. You're making me nervous because I'm not in control. All right? So we've been doing this for a little bit. And finally, one day, we started off a journey, and she was driving. I was sitting here. I was going to rest. The kids are in the back. We're just having a great old family time. The journey is about to begin. And, and she looks at me and she says, listen, I'm going to drive, but you need to hush. I'm like, okay, I got you. I got you. So we make it out of the driveway. 
<laughs> we have a long driveway, thankfully. It was a good 30 seconds. And so we get going along the way, and so I just start mentioning things, educating, improving her driving, all those kind of things, asking questions like, are you going to pass the car or are you going to play tag with the car? You know, things like that. What are we going to do? And so finally, like, I, you know, she has said this for years. I'm just going to pull this car over, you know, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Well, she did it. This day, she had done it. And so she just <laughs> throws up in the car, comes around the side on my side, and she's like, just looking through the window at me. Like, if this car is moving, so I just slowly roll the window down. <laughs> yes, honey? We're not going nowhere until you move around over here because my driving is not good enough. In reality, it's not her driving. It's my control. And we all have areas of control. We want to be in control of life. And so this idea of lordship is a struggle for us is continually. And there's areas of your life, there's areas of our life where we want to offer over control. We want God to be. We want Jesus to be Lord over that area, but we don't fully surrender it to him. And so we struggle with casual Christianity. We struggle with cultural Christianity. We even struggle with Christian atheism. This idea of we believe in God, but in areas of our life we live as if he doesn't exist. And that's the struggle for us. And even Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he's talking to the crowd and he says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Because our actions show something exactly the opposite, that he's not supreme controller, he's not authority of our life. If we say Lord, Lord, and do something completely different, then he's not authority in our life, that we are assuming control. I believe in Jesus, but I still want to be in control of areas of my life. Am I right? This is our struggle. Or maybe this. Keep me out of hell. Keep me out of hell, but I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. I think that's American Christianity. Keep me out of hell, but let me do the hell whatever I want. We've punched our ticket, but we haven't made him Lord. Now here's the interesting thing. is He's Lord already. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. It's a matter of whether we're going to submit to his authority. Do we trust him to submit to his authority? Do we believe that he is sufficient and he is capable to help us and to rule over areas of our life and give wisdom and authority to certain of our lives where we're trying to control it and instead just to let him be Lord and speak truth into it and find freedom in that area? Now this, I want you to just kind of just... For a moment. We don't do this a lot of it. I just want you just to close your eyes for a second. Don't look at anyone. I'm going to just ask you some questions. And I want you just to, this is just you thinking through this. What have I not surrendered to the Lord? What have I not surrendered to Jesus? What area of your life? I want you to name it. Just ask God, God, show me what I haven't surrendered. What area of your life is, are you still trying to control? What area am I unwilling to give over? Put a name on it. Literally, I want you to put a name on it. Like just, 
in your mind, just under your breath, just put a name on whatever it is, whether that's your kids, whether that's your future, whether that's your relationships, whether that's your finances. Just allow God to just kind of walk through your house. And those closets that you've been kind of saying, God, I've got control over this mess. And maybe you've closed off and locked up and thrown away the key because you don't really want to deal with it. He knows it's there. Just let him in there. Just name it. Put a name over that closet. Put a name over that room. All of us, in one way or another, have partially surrendered. What's that area that Jesus needs to take control over and be supreme authority over? All right, you can look up. So full lordship, what does that look like? We don't make Jesus Lord. He's surrender. We already, he already is. It's just a matter of us surrendering. So how do we surrender to that? Look at Romans 14, verse 7 and following. It says this, For none of us lives our lives alone. This is a covenant language. So this is for Christians. This is in the community of church. That, that we're, This is language that Paul is talking about. In this community, none of us live alone. None of us live our lives for ourselves and ourselves alone. None of us die alone. We're in community. Verse 8. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord because that's our purpose. Because as followers of Jesus, we've made that profession that Peter makes. He's our Messiah, our Savior. So now we, we live for him. So whether we die or we live, look at this, we belong to the Lord. But here's why. Look at the next part of that. For the, this very reason, so that we can belong to him, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the living and of the dead. The babe wrapped in swaddling clothes gave his life so that he could be Lord over us. It cost him everything, and it cost us nothing. That babe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, gave his life so that we could he could be Lord over our life and bring freedom to the areas of our life where we need it, which is our entire life. It's our entire life. He wants to bring salvation and freedom to every single portion of our life, but we hold so dearly to some of those things. We want to have control over this. We want to have control over that, and we just don't want God to get in the mess we think this is too messy, or God, if you knew this about me, or if, God, if I allow you to do this, I don't know what you're going to require of me. God says, listen, I've come and have given my life for every single area of messiness of your life. Just surrender it to me. Allow me to be Lord and have supreme control over that area. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Many of you, if you've grown up in and around church, you know it. It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean out on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit or acknowledge to him and he will make your paths straight. Now, some of your Bibles, that word submit may say acknowledge. And so this idea of submit and acknowledge, literally the word is yada. Y'all say yada with me? Yada. All right, that's your new word. Yada means intimate knowledge. It's the same word that's used for when Adam and Eve knew each other for the first time. That's intimate knowledge, okay? And so here's what, here's what this passage is saying to us. 
is to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways with intimate knowledge, know him. Confession him, know him, spend time with him, intimately know him. Why? Because he will make your paths straight. Those paths that we're that you're in where you keep going around in the circles and you keep seeing the same tree and you're wondering why I keep doing the same thing over and over and I'm getting the same results because you're doing it in your own wisdom. Why? Because you haven't acknowledged him and allowed him to be Lord over it so he can make your path straight. That doesn't say easy, does it? But a straight Path, which means if you walk a straight path, you can get from A to B a little bit faster usually. Right? That's the way we like the interstates and the freeways because they're usually straight paths that you can move in a hurry and there's few distractions. That's the beauty of this. And your very ways that you should submit and acknowledge and know Him. And He will make your path straight. As a matter of fact, He even tells us that He will walk with us. When the paths seem dangerous and we don't know the path, that he will walk with us and step-by-step guide us. The babe wrapped in swaddling clothes isn't just a little babe that's laying down his head, but he's a Savior, a Messiah, and the Lord. And with profession of our voice, we call out and we join a community and we belong to him. And in those no ability to know him intimately and to do relationship with him can radically change our life. And the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes not only is a cute little baby, but transforms our heart. And so that those moments where we have encounters with him, just like the woman at the well, where we feel like we're dirty, we're not kind of meeting up. She says that none of that stuff matters because I am sufficient. Who you are doesn't matter. I am sufficient. Meet me and encounter me and find freedom in me. Away in a manger is a little babe who transforms the world. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, as we look and we know and we say that you are the Savior, you are the Messiah, Father, we also admit that we want you to be Lord. Or maybe we don't. I don't know. I don't want to speak for everybody. But, Father, as we struggle against this idea of lordship, Father, that there's areas of our life where we need freedom, where we need victory, where we need less of us and our wisdom, and we need to lean into your understanding. We need to submit and acknowledge that you are God and we're not. And that we're tired of hiding stuff in closets. We're tired of literally walking in circles and seeing the same tree over and over and over again and wondering when the view will change. The view will change when we read the road signs and submit to new direction. So, Father, may we admit, submit, and know you. And in knowing you, begin to understand that you love us intimately. You know the details of our lives. And even the very things that we're trying to hide from you, you know. And you're not surprised by them. You know that there are days that we need to show up at the well at noon to not be seen by anyone else. Because we have stuff we want to hide. And you know it already. And we just surrender it to you.
name it, and surrender it. May you be Lord of our lives. Since your son's name that we pray. Amen.